there's, there's a similarity between Memphis and Vegas. And what it is, is that people arrive with preconceptions that allow them freedoms they don't allow themselves at home. Welcome to the Shellcats, a show about music, culture, and Memphis. As we live into our mission of building community through music, education, and diversity, we look forward to interviewing artists and musicians and hearing about how they are writing their own stories, and building their own communities. 85 years strong and with a rich history, the Levitt Shell has stood the test of time as a beacon of hope in the heart of Memphis. podcast is brought to you by Orion Federal Credit Union, where a big part of us is being a big part of the community. Visit orionfcu.com to see how Orion is redefining banking. Hi, and welcome to the Shellcast, episode 20. If you heard our last episode, you learned that Emmy and Grammy-winning author, historian, and filmmaker Robert Gordon is also pretty much a walking history book when it comes to Memphis music. Robert and fellow Memphis legend Steve Selvage sat down for a conversation about Robert's epic book, It Came From Memphis. That book is full of facts and stories that go a long way towards explaining why Memphis has always been at the forefront of the world's music scene. This is part two of our two-part series with Robert Gordon. Um, speaking just to the general sort of, you know, vibe of your book, like the notion that Memphis music as right. an entity and as something unique and not just because like we had this hit and this hit and this hit. Right. It's this sort of intangible that runs through all of it. Yeah. Do you, was there a moment or a series of moments where where you became aware of that? Like, wait a minute, like, like I'm a music fan, but right. wait, like this is, this is our own thing, and it's not like. There's two answers to that. Okay. You know, one is when you realize that the blues came from Memphis, mm-hmm. and that Stax's soul music came from Memphis and that son Elvis's rock and roll came from Memphis, you realize that, wait a minute, there's this progression of music from blues to rock and roll to soul, and, and you realize it's happening here, then you begin to go, wait a minute, it's gotta be a reason, you know? And mm-hmm. the reason is we're the capital of the Mississippi Delta. Right. You know, that's what I think. But, but, um, but yeah, and, and I was gonna tell you something else about the way it all came together. Oh. It was really reading Peter Goralnik's book on Sam Phillips. So what, five years ago, you know, not very right. recent, that I got the realization. It helped me understand my book. Right. You know, because I didn't realize, I've had people tell me this book changed my life, you know, and, and that it really opened them up to things. And because I was just writing what I knew and I didn't have any real distance from the book, mm-hmm. I couldn't understand that. But in prepping this edition, right, I got a new sense of the book and what it, what it was, and I realized I'd had the light bulb with, with Peter's, Sam Phillips' book, you know, which, which emphasizes Sam's motto of give me something different. Right. Right, I want something different. And what I realized was that the, that Memphis music and this book 
and all things like that out of here, they redefine success. Right. You know, success is not the uh, perfect production and perfect harmonies and the number one hit. You know, success is capturing an individual sense of personality. And the, the and that's what the blues and rock and roll and soul have allowed. You know, they've allowed they've allowed Elvis to tap into that um, forbidden place in his mind where he can he can hop and skip in his mind as he scats along to That's All Right Mama. Right. Or or, you know, it allows Booker T and the MGs to have to sound so much to, 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 to maintain a personality through all their songs and for each song to have so much character and be recognizable as theirs. Right. You know, that, that, that what the Memphis thing is about is about the expression of individual personality and that what that is, is it's not about trying to sound, have a hit that sounds like everybody. Mm -hmm. It's trying to have a hit that sounds like nobody. Right. We want to be the mistake. We want to be the thing that's different. You know, trends begin here a lot of times sure. because we do stuff different. Um, you know, follow-up hits if, uh, you know, uh, there's not Taylor Swift Jr. coming out of here. Taylor Swift Jr. comes out of L.A. and New York. Right, you know, right. That's what New York and L.A. are for. We're, we're like a place sort of like Hibbing, Minnesota, you know, or we're the, we're the outlying place that ha allows the freakish thing to work its way to the top and influence everybody. Right. I remember... Um, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I remember my... In that Charles or Terry footage, yep. I remember my dad saying that Memphis gave people the latitude to to just be able to create, yep. you know, and, and, and just... I think it's... Just, it's a freedom. It's a freedom. It, it, and it's... It's almost not even a conscious freedom. It's just yeah. like you, you like it's just you wouldn't know it any other way. It's just like you're just left alone, you know. I mean, and that goes all the way through the grifters. Yeah. You know, and 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 just I'm I'm really curious to see how it. You know, we, we're also much more connected now. Um, I I wonder it's it's and and you know and now I'm like of an older generation and you know but <laughs> tell me about it. It's so it, I'm curious to see what you know people moving forward. You know, younger musicians how they're going to pick how they're going to reflect that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people seem to be sort of aware of the past and, and take things from it, but... But I think even in hip-hop, you know, it was not an accident that Crunk, yes. you know, established itself here, that 3-6 got their own tone. Even if 3-6 had nothing, had, you know, has never heard of Furry Lewis or right. Stax Records or Jim Dickinson or Mudboy, there, you know, there's a freedom in the city. Yes. You know, people, people used to love to come to visit me in high school and college because it was, I would take them to a world unlike anything they'd ever experienced. Yes, yes. And it's interesting with Memphis because people, it's, it's, there's no gray, gray area. And I think it sort of defines who you are as a person. But you come here and people either get it and love it or they freak out and get away as fast as they can. Yeah. You know, I remember what Jimmy Crossway saying, like, Memphis is like a big rubber band. The farther you go, the harder you snap back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, so back to, you know, you asked me what I think, like, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm just completely talking craziness and, but like, I've, there's a real metaphysical component to me 
And, and, and you say freedom, freedom based in oppression. Yep. And hatred, man. The city is built on hatred. And this whole book is about collisions. Absolutely. You know, I mean, like head on, head on collisions that, that made music that literally changed the world. You yep. know, um, that's that's the thing. It's not a pretty story. You know, no. and and I tried not to shy from it, you know, and that's and and uh, it's <laughs> I remember uh, Jim Dickinson. This is a leap, but but. Uh, you know, after Elvis died and the city got interested in making money. The, right. the, the, this, when I was growing up, Memphis wanted to present itself as a slice of European culture in the South. You know, high tea at the Peabody, right. classical music. We don't listen to that, you know, that old slave stuff. <laughs> you know, no, 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 not us, not us. And, and then once Elvis died and money was to be made, the city fathers said, "Oh, wait a minute. Maybe that thing we've been despising and abhorring right. all the all these decades. Maybe you know the kids seem to like it. There's right. money in it. Right. And and I remember Jim saying that the you know the efforts to organize the Memphis music community are always going to be futile because these are you know these are um, you know artistic souls who congregate." in the dark, at night, mm -hmm. you know, and, and have strong opinions and aren't going to be sitting in a room and voting at a meeting. <laughs> no, no. And, and it's, they're like Quicksilver. It's just like, you know, the, the harder you try to grab them, they just, you know, slip out. And I mean, just the, the notion of that sort of, you know, you can call it corporate or whatever. It's like, yeah, no, we're here to help the music industry in Memphis. It's like, well, are you really, though? Or like, because yeah. the thing is, it's like, the people that do good stuff, it's always, I mean, they're gonna do it regardless of who's on a board or a committee, yeah. you know? It's like, you need their help, they don't need your help. I remember, uh, again, kind of hopping and skipping here, and uh, it's a story I told in the book. I always, when I'm, you know, doing interviews, I try to pay the, the subject and, and- I love and, this part, yeah, yeah. An honorarium because, uh, you know, Rufus Thomas has given me his time, yes. right? So, and his story that he's, the interview he's gonna give me for my documentary is gonna help my documentary. Yes. And, and, and there's a budget for the documentary, so since he's an element in it, he should be paid some minor honorarium for his time. Sure. And so as I started getting involved in film, a New York WNET crew comes into town, I'm working with them, and they're gonna do a bunch of interviews. And I said, well, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta, these people have light bills and heating yeah. bills and, and, and you're gonna make something off them, you gotta let them make something off you, you gotta pay for the interview. I've never paid for an interview in my life. And me and this guy had this argument at a restaurant in Overton Square, me and the producer, and when it was done, he agreed to pay. And he walked across the street to the French Quarter Inn. You know, at that time, it was like the second most expensive right, hotel in town. Right. And he's arguing with me about paying 50 bucks to, to, yeah. to somebody who's going to be in his film. Right. You and, know? and this is somebody who's like, you know, their life story is really the only thing that they have that you can't, that you can't be taken away. Exactly. And, it was, and a lot of it wasn't very easy. And they went through a lot of hard times and depression to get to where they were, to, to bring the joy that they did. And the publicity, they, the answer is always, well, they're going to get free publicity from this. It's like, dude, the people selling their albums don't pay these people. Yeah. They're not, they're not getting free publicity they're not getting no. free anything they're getting abused and so I set out early on and have and have stuck to that, that yeah. you know these these people deserve to be interview subjects deserve to be paid it's not 
paying for information, it's respecting it's res time. Exactly. I mean, and like you said, even, you know, it's symbolic. It's, 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 it's more than just like the monetary figure. It's like, you know, look, I'm giving you what I can here, you know, yeah. here. Like, you know, it's, it's sort of a, more than a handshake, but it's, yeah, it's a sort of this tacit agreement. Like, I respect yes, your it's story. A, a sign, exactly. Yeah. Sign of respect. That's great. Well, good on you for doing that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, what else is good? Well, I was, I was kind of curious about, you know, the way Sons of Mudboy has worked out. Y'all figure, uh, I'll, you know, spoiler right. alert, y'all figure prominently in the, in the new chapter. Yeah. But it's the logical place where the, where the story would go, that, that, that the children of the you know, of three of the members of mm -hmm. Mudboy play with the surviving members still. Right, you know? yes. Jimmy, and the one least likely to, to, to survive <laughs> is the last man Him and Jerry Lee, right? I'll tell you what, man. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny because we just, I mean, there was, I guess it was a given that we were going to get any music. It was certainly, for me, it wasn't like, you must do this, you know. Right. It was just like... I, I don't know if you saw somebody put up footage from a blues festival downtown recently where like um, it's kind of like some super eight and they synced it in, but yeah and, and it's like it, there's the artist tent and it's my dad's opening up his guitar case and Jim's opening up his and Luther and I are both there just like <laughs> you know so it was sort of a foregone you know, conclusion at that point but you know we had our own things going on, our own set of influences, and, and, and for a long time, I hate to say it, we just sort of took it for granted. They were just always there. Yeah. You know, we didn't, I mean, we knew that, but you don't know. Yeah. And, but, you know, the, the, the funny story that I have is that when we first, when I first sort of like got a kind of key into the world of like, well, maybe, wait a minute, maybe we could do this, is uh, Luther and I were hanging out. I was when I lived in the Shrine Building. We were hanging out playing guitar, you know, and, and uh, I started playing Codine, and I started singing it. And because like, I was afraid to sing in the house, you know. I'd play guitar all day long. If Baker was coming over, I'd make sure I'd, I was playing guitar. Oh, you're, I didn't know you were coming over. What's up? I was just, I was just playing guitar, man, that's cool. Um, but I started singing it, and this visceral feeling happened. And, and, and like, wow. I, it was so hot, I just stopped, and Luther and I started cracking up out of joy. But what my, da my dad, like the door was shut, you know, we were, his teenage son was hanging out with his friends. Dad walked by and just heard me playing, singing it, and stop, and I was falling out in laughter. He was like, I guess they're making fun of me. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> he thought that we were goofing on him, you know. Um, the, wow. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's just, it's playing with them when they're alive and then carrying it on when they weren't. And those are the two d different things. You know, like, the Pinnacles were like the brewery gig where... Oh, yeah? Uh, in 95 where we, that was the first time that we all played with Mudboy, me, Luther, Cody, Paul Taylor. Ben was a little young, but like we played, we played with Mudboy. That was, you know, and then we did it for like, you know, until Lee was killed, like yeah. we did it a few times, you know, yeah. and that was like, I mean, that, that was making it, you know. Yeah. That was like, wow. we're playing with the, with, with the men. You're you know? on the big stage. Yes, you know. And then as time went on, like. Take this kid's table. Yeah, I'm exactly. Yeah, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> Don't give me milk, give me a beer. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, our dads early on, and then certainly when things were changing, instilled in us in the concept of playing somebody home. And in, 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 in what? Playing somebody home. Oh, interesting. You know, so I was on tour when Baker died. 
Uh -huh. So I couldn't go to the funeral. And uh -huh. I was just, you know, and my dad was like, you're working. Baker wants you to work, you know, do you're, you're where you need to be, you know, because I was really upset. And, uh, you know, they sat and played, I think, Can't Feel a Home. At the service? Yeah. I remember it. <clears throat> and it was like, how are we going to get through it? Yeah. Like, this is our, con this is our brother, our comrade, you know. And out of nowhere, Roland Janes, who weaves beautifully through this book, Roland Janes just sort of emerges in the, in, the, in the aisle between the pews. And it was as if there's a glass and he's behind the console and it's like, we got to get a take and you, 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 you behave for Roland. Yeah. And they, they did, you know. So, so then when Jim died and my dad died, you know, when my dad was sick, he was like, you have to keep singing these songs. Yeah. People need to know who Furry Lewis is. People need to hear Casey Jones. People yeah. need to hear this music, you know, it's important. So. Luckily, we enjoyed playing the music as well, you know, so it, it, it took on a different cast once it was just really just us, you know, and like, again, we didn't do any kind of like planning, like we should make a record, we should, we should be the sons of Mudboy and like, you know, tell the story. It's just, we just sort of get together whenever we can, you know, and, uh, and, and who knows? It, it's there's no there's no point in sort of trying to codify it at all. Man, I you know I would go to those gigs, y'all the pop up gigs y'all would do like mm -hmm. at DKDC every now and yes. then. And I remember one time, talk you know, talking to some stranger in front of me. Oh, he turned. I think he turns around. And he goes, you know, he'd wandered in off the street. And right. I was like, who is this? What's going on? Right. And because everyone was so swept up in it, you know, yeah. and 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 it's the sign of success, you know this stranger could feel the communing, the mm -hmm. communing of the room with y'all yes. and the band, and could feel the communing of these songs with y'all's dads and the people they learned it yeah. from. Yeah, I mean, yes, you know, and like, cause the, and there's, what we picked up on was like, there was joy and pain mm -hmm. and a lot of arguments and, and mm -hmm grown men arguing with one another and yeah. us as, as kids hearing Egos about it. Egos clashing, collisions, Egos. man. I mean, you know, it's like, my boy, it's like, it wasn't always pretty. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I was uh, sort of, I'm, I remember hearing some of those conversations, you know, it was like, there's definitely a good reason why my dad was a well-established solo artist, because he was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I am not dealing with the I, I remember, because I was, I, I always had a band, you know. Yeah. Matter of fact, when, um, when that live my boy record was cut, Luther was there, and he was like, where's Steve? And my dad told Luther, he's like, oh, uh, he's got a gig. And Luther was just like, what? Because I, I, I was playing in punk rock bands, hardcore bands, because you know, I got in the skate scene and the hardcore, the antenna scene. Yeah. So I was playing Caroline Smallwood's, you know, back, and so that was an, another thing. But um, anyway, like, whenever there's like a, a band thing would happen, my dad would just like kind of, he'd hear me bitching about something, and he'd just kind of walk by and shake his head and say, Band dynamics. That was that was his term for it. You know? Band dynamics. You know, so damn band damn dynamics. Band, yeah, totally. <laughs> but you know, so there's, but like that's when you have this community, it's like they did love each other, you know, yeah. and, and like, and you can hear that, and, yeah. and you can hear the years of growing up and starting families, and you know, and that kind of thing. And then we just sort of did the same thing. And I think, you know, you, you talk about DKDC. I think that's, you know, up until 2020 that's your through line moving forward, at least exactly. for me, because there, there's, there's young people playing there. Yep. And like, it's just, I'm sure every town has a magic club. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we're the only place that magic happens, you know, 
but I've just I've seen it happen so many times and things that I've thrown together, things that other people have thrown together, that place, that place in particular, I think Memphis is so much about certain spaces spaces and their sort of psychoactive or you know metaphysical kind of vibes. Want to learn more about how you can support the Levitt Shell and its mission of building community through music, education, and diversity? Head to levittshell.org. You can read up on our 85-year history and check out our schedule of live and virtual events. Visit our shell shop to grab all the swag and find out ways you can participate in our mission, whether that's through donations, volunteering, sponsoring a show, or becoming a member of our shell circle. Once again, that's levittshell.org. I think there's a similarity between Memphis and Vegas. And what it is is that people arrive with preconceptions. Sure. People who are tuned in to what we're talking about arrive with preconceptions that allow them freedoms they don't allow themselves at home. Yeah. So oh, people go okay. to Vegas okay. and they yeah, do, yeah, yeah. they gamble or whore or whatever sure. in ways they, they would never do in their hometown. Right. And in Memphis, they come and they, and they, cross the tracks is what yes. I think it is. When I went on my first book tour with this book, I would, at, at every town, I would tell people, look, you know, go to the places you're scared to go to. Right. There's no reason to be scared. Yeah. You know, there's good music there, there's good people there. You be nice, they'll be nice. And be you nice will or find, leave. <laughs> yeah, be nice or leave. You will find bridges get, this is the way bridges get built by interacting. Exactly. You know, and if you don't interact, it's not gonna happen. And, and, and so you've gotta go to where you think you're not supposed to go. Right, because there'll, be there'll be a friendly face there, you know? Yeah. And, and just glad to see you. And then, and then you just, you, it, it broadens your perspective, you know, and then you take that home with you. And you take that home and yeah. you, and you, you know, it's I better remember- better than some of you take home from Vegas, probably. <laughs> That's, there is a difference between Memphis <laughs> and Vegas. Uh, but, but yeah, I think people allow themselves a freedom here. So they, they go to a church service or a blues club mm -hmm. or a kind of place that they, that they wouldn't feel comfortable going to elsewhere. Yeah. And they, and they think Memphis is magic. And it's like, okay, I'll buy that Memphis is magic, but I'll, buy, I'll bet you there's magic in your hometown exactly. that you are not checking out. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, and again, how much of that is born out of, out of struggle? And, you know, it's interesting when you talk about, like, Memphis being the top of the Mississippi Delta, you know, and it's, it's only been recent years my dad was from Greenville, but we never went down there. But like I played um, down there last year, I think it was, and I haven't done that drive in a while. And it's, again, maybe I'm being a little too about it, but like, it's a three hour drive, basically. It's a three hour drive to Nashville, and you don't think anything about it because it's on a super highway, as they call it. Driving to Greenville, it, it felt like the pressure on the car just got more and more. Like, I think, really? Yeah, it was menacing, you know. I just feel like there's a lot to answer for, uh -huh. you know. Um, That's true. You know, and I, I and I don't know moving moving forward how that will come out in the music or the or the popular culture. I see a lot of promise and hope in Memphis, and I draw largely from the public school experience my kids had. Sure. You know that. You know when I was seven, Dr. King was assassinated. Right. Here. That's when I learned the word curfew. And, and, wow. and I remember, 
you know. So I was, I remember, and my family, at, at my, and my father, an attorney downtown, invited an African-American attorney and his wife to dinner at our house. Right. It was like, my dad realized, let's begin on, on you know, my, my mom and dad realized, let's begin healing on a one-to-one -one basis. And, they, and, I, and when I learned that, I didn't recall that, but when I learned that, it, it made a lot of sense to me as, it helped me understand the way I was raised. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when my kids brought home friends of, you know, not only African-Americans, but, but Indian-Americans. Sure. And, you know, people from all over the world, all shades of color yeah. uh, and creed. And they thought nothing about it. They'd never known to think otherwise. It gave me great hope. Right. It it's, gave me great hope for our city. Not, it's not that they were even intentional in doing it. They were just, it was yeah. just Tuesday. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, and, 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 and I never pointed it out. Right. Because right. I didn't want to make right. it a thing. You right. know? Exactly. I just, yeah. you know, you know and, inside. That, and that's, to me, the importance of public school and music in public school, you know, which is obviously very threatening. But, I mean, because that, that was it for me. I mean, like, you know, I, I was coming up and it was, you know, it, I wouldn't call it super diverse. I mean, people just, these people hung out with each other and these people hung out with each other. But in jazz band taught by Bill McKee, who played in the Rhythm Hounds, you know, oh, yeah. who was an actual guy that played gigs, you know. Um, it was just about, can you play? You yeah. Know? I mean, music. Oh, was, that's cool. Yeah, and I, I, I remember being very thankful for it. Um, and I just, you know, I feel like there is this, this coming diversity. It's just like, wh whatever the political climate is, like, you can't, the younger people just, they just don't see it as, as much. They don't see the, the, the lines as yes, much. Yes, exactly. You know, exactly. so, and I'm, you know, and you know, you just bring up Dr. King, and like that's that's a big, you know, folding point. I feel like um, I remember my dad talking about it. Just that, like you know, Beale Street and downtown, everything just shut. Like a, he said, it, everything shut like a book. Uh huh. You know. Huh. And because you know he had been hanging, he had been hanging out at Stacks a little bit because he had the the Enterprise deal. Right. 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 You know, and and then you you know, there's a story of. Uh, was it Don Nix and Duck were gonna leave the studio, and, and Isaac the, yeah. was like, let, "Let me drive you home." Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, it's and Duck tells a story about being uh, taking a smoke break on the sidewalk in between a session, and he and Isaac are outside on the curb. He said a cop car screeched up onto the curb, jumped out, and said to Duck, "Are you okay?" <laughs> and Duck said, "I was never more embarrassed in my life." I'm sure. Yeah, he's like, I'm better than you. I'm hanging out with Isaac Hayes. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, yeah, that, you know, and that makes, you know, like, so say it's 1995. I mean, you're, you're looking backwards, but there was also, you know, some contem contemporary interviews that you did. Oh, yeah. Rather, you know, how did, can you explain sort of the difference of the vibe that you felt of, like, interviewing somebody in real time, you know, like, Talking, talking to Baker about Mud Boy or something like that was different than like talking about the plantation in the 50s. Right. Like that was a world away from right. you. This was something you could kind of touch, you know. Um, it's, it, it's, I really think it's about creating an intimacy in an interview and a mood. Mm -hmm. And you have to, you can't walk into the hard stuff right away. You right. know, you have to build up to it. And, and for all those guys, your dad included, you know, I mean, I, it was... I've always thought my stutter helped me as an interviewer Disarming. because it disarms people. But also, one thing I've learned as a stutterer is um, 
when there's when I'm blocked, having an extended silence because I can't get the sound out, right. people fill in the space. So I learned as an interviewer to not say anything sometimes. Sure. So that people people might continue a thought deeper. And it has it's worked, you know, eighty percent right. of the time. And it allows them to go somewhere deeper in their head and and if there's an intimacy created, it allows that um, depth to be expressed. So that people talking about, um, you know, racial incidents that they experienced in the past, mm -hmm. uh, you, I could feel, I could get a real sense of it. I could really feel the pain. The one that pops to mind is Dickinson driving home from a fake Marquis gig. Right. He he's dropped off someone from the back seat, and now it's him and, and an African American trumpet player, I think, in the front seat. Right. And a cop starts tailing them because it's an integrated car. Right. And when Jim pulled up to the guy's house to drop him off, the guy knew that they were being tailed. You know, so Jim waits outside to make sure the guy gets inside okay. The cop comes out of his car. Jim rolls down the window, comes up to Jim's window and says, and this is just unbelievably horrible. He says, well, why don't you just go ahead and live with them then? You know, and, and, and like, you're not going to get that kind of, I think you have to work a little bit to get that kind of story. Right. And that comes from having a good relationship with the people and creating that kind of feel in, in an interview. The bit of trust. Trust, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, because and 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 I'll, and you mentioned that you know the the hatred and the pain that the story is not you know and the story of Memphis music is not uh, a, one of jo only of joyous no. collaboration. No, absolutely. You know, the joy part of the joy comes from achieving it, defying the odds, and achieving it. Everything, all the success from Memphis is is against the odds. You know, it's people think of this as a music town you know, as a, um, as a r r record company town, but it never was, you know. No national label, I think Mercury for a minute, had right. an office here. No national label has ever had an office here. Homegrown labels had become national, right. you know, before they, they caved in, but um, we've never been the, the, the commerce center. We're the artistic center. We're, we're, you know, when Nashville won't let you do it, people make the three-hour drive to Memphis. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious to see how that scene continues to. That Nashville is a very different Nashville now, and I'm curious to see what the sort of trickle down from that, you know, how that affects Memphis. Well, what do you when you say it's very different? What do you think? Um, there's so much of a larger, like, kind of the popular, bigger indie rock presence, you know, or Jack White, and and then just like the, that, this sort of new face of country where it's sort of like just 20 something year old kind of dirtbag looking dudes just kind of doing whatever but it's the, the hipster thing or whatever yeah. it's, it's not just like Garth Brooks right you know that kind of thing I mean that 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 thing is still there but you know it's just gotten so big I mean you know, even just as a town it's like you know the cranes it's like the, yeah. the next Austin and people moving from LA and all that kind of stuff and I and Memphis being Memphis I just feel like you know people are like man we're gonna get gentrified I'm like I I think we're a little too rugged to I hope to, you're right yeah to, to fend that off. You know, I just love that um, they got the shot for the cover. It's, uh, I sent a bunch of photos up there. Right. And, 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 and they came back and said, what if we put 
this one on the cover. And I loved it because it's not explicitly musical. Yeah. You know, um, it, it defies, it, it goes up against the, uh, you know, the, the great Southern fear of the black man and the white well, yeah, the woman. It's so of the era too, you know, this is, this is so, this is a 70 shot. When um, I was a kid, you know, yeah, that's, this that, was it. And I shopped at that Zare. In the I, oh, me too, yeah. yeah all, that, that was the first thing I noticed was the Zare. I was like, oh man, I tried to, I, I tried to buy a fake Michael Jackson beat it jacket at that Zare, man. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Wow, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, that is a photo for sure. When they first came up with this cover, too, I thought, you know, it wasn't exactly like this. We had to tweak it some, but when they first came up with it, I thought, man, people are going to look at this cover and go, what's this old 60s book doing on the, or, you know, this right. 1972 right. book doing on the new arrivals table, <laughs> you know, but, but it, it's got just enough modern to it right. to, to, to work. Now, who took that photo? Tav. Tav took that photo. Yeah, Tav Falco. When did you become aware of the whole like Eggleston Tav scene? Or did you know that they were like a, a thing under themselves, like you know, kind of a visual? I, I, art? I came to find out, you know. Right. I remember, you know, I remember figuring out, you know, a, a new gym and Mud Boy. And, right. And then Alex, and seeing Alex at the antenna with the Panther Burns on right. time. Right. Right. And Eggleston, I don't remember when I figured out what that was about, but I remember one night Tav inviting me to Bill's Walnut Grove house. Right. Um, and I think the first time I really hung with Bill was in the making of this book. Okay, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to, to know where the lines blurred because, like, I've, I've known you forever, and you yep. sort of seem to have been, you know, in, in our lives, and, and yet... I don't, I don't, sometimes I don't know when people come in and come out. Yeah, you know, same here, you know, it's yeah. hard, and it, and it goes back so long. I know, it does. Um, well, that's great, man. Well, this has been great. Uh, uh, I really appreciate yeah. your coming out to do it. I'm glad, glad you asked me, man. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's do it again in a public space when we can. You know? Yes, uh, yes, yes. We all look forward to entering the great outdoors again with, without trepidation. I think you need to make some It Came From Memphis shirts. ha, <laughs> ha. That, that yellow with that red would look... That it's would, cool. That would pop, man. Okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Robert. Well, thanks, Steve. All right. <laughs> thanks so much for tuning in to part two of our great series with Robert Gordon and Steve Selvage. We're truly grateful to both of those guys for their time and their talents. If you want to learn more about Robert's work or order your own copy of He Came From Memphis, head over to therobertgordon.com or grab one from your favorite local bookstore. Of course, if you want to learn more about what we're up to at the Levitt Shell and how you can help, head to levittshell.org. We'd truly appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be here again soon for the next episode of The Shellcast. <laughs>